And here come the Greeks, led out by their veteran centre-half, Heraclitus. And here come the Germans now, led by their skipper, Nobby Hagel. The Greeks are going mad! The Greeks are going mad! The Germans are disputing it. Hegel is arguing that the reality is merely an a priori adjunct of non-naturalistic ethics, chanted by the categorical imperative, is holding that ontologically exists only in imagination, and Marx is claiming it was offside. Welcome to another episode of Philosophy for Theologians. My name is Jared Oliphant, and we've got an excellent show and topic lined up. Let me introduce our guest today, Nathan Sasser, who is Assistant Director of Academic Affairs at the Pastors College for Sovereign Grace Ministries. Welcome to the show, Nathan. Thanks. Great to be here, Jared. Great to have you. We had Nathan on to talk about Hume a year ago. Um, Hard to believe it was that long ago. And uh, that's the topic for your doctoral work in philosophy at the University of South Carolina. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And also, Nathan and I were classmates at Westminster a decade ago, which also seems way too long ago, um, many, many moons ago, a whole other lifetime ago, a few lifetimes ago. But um, today, our topic is worldview. And part of the reason I wanted to have Nathan on in particular is he's involved in an upcoming conference. Well, besides the the upcoming conference, he has the credentials and, and a lot of good things to say, but wanted to point to an upcoming conference that also focuses on the topic of worldview. And the conference itself has some help from some pretty heavy theological hitters, uh, diving into topics like science, politics, psychology, philosophy, apologetics. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the conference itself and maybe why you guys chose to talk about those issues and topics over others. And um, yeah, what's going to be going on during that, that time? Yeah, uh, I had the privilege of, of heading up the Clash Conference, which is put on by the Pastors College of Sovereign Grace Ministries, and it's directed towards uh, rising college students and college students and folks who are just out of college. Um, originally, it was just for folks in Sovereign Grace, but this year we've opened it up to anybody. Uh, unfortunately, registration has just closed. Uh, it's possible you could slide in if you really bang on the doors hard. But anyway, the... Um, the conference, we're, we're doing it to just equip our folks to, uh, to enter into any sphere of life uh, for the Lord and, and equipped with a good theologically based worldview. And um, so we've got Jeff Perswell, who's the dean of the Pastors College, and myself. We kind of give basic foundational theological perspectives. I also interact some with philosophy and apologetics. Um, and then we have guest speakers who address specialized areas. So this year, actually for the third year now, we've got Ian Duguid, who's currently an Old Testament professor at Grove City College, coming to, to do three lectures on uh, Christianity and science. And he focuses on issues of origins because that's something he's done some work on and done and teaches on at Grove City. Yeah. Uh, so we've also got Wayne Grudem to talk for a day, five lectures on politics and economics and business. And you'll know that he's published on those areas as well. Uh, and then we've got David Pallison, uh, who uh, will be addressing us for an entire day on Christianity and secular psychology. And I believe that Dr. Pallison is working on a book on that subject now. So nice. you know, those, are all, those are all areas where um, Christian engagement is unavoidable, is crucial, and just takes a lot of biblical discernment. So we're, we're very honored to have them with us this year. Yeah, nice. Wow, sounds like a, a great lineup. Yeah. And like I said, it, it touches on what we want to talk about today, which is worldview. And that worldview, it's almost too broad of a topic or a, or a term to cover in an hour. We'll do our best. But um, it covers a number of areas, like Nathan said, culture, politics, philosophy, the sciences, uh, natural and social sciences, the relationship of the church to secular psychology. Um, so and, and it gets discussed from a number of areas. Um, some people take it for granted that a Christian worldview is going to affect everything. Others say it really um, doesn't affect much, and we shouldn't use the term worldview because um, of some of the ambiguities. But Maybe we can start up by defining our terms a little bit. Nathan, when you're engaging in these conversations, what do or what should we mean by worldview? What do we mean by worldview? And how does that differ from the term philosophy or the field of philosophy? Can we relate those two? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And we could say at the outset that, um, you know, even people who like the term worldview differ on its relationship to philosophy. So, for example, a guy like Al Wolters, who comes from a Dewey Veridian background, thinks that worldview is prior to the technical academic discipline of philosophy, whereas others uh, tend to think, hey, we're talking about the same thing as worldview and philosophy, same, same idea. Uh, but if we just leave it at the level of talking about worldview or philosophy, it can obscure the fact that we're really trying to just put labels on what are really biblical concepts. So when I talk about worldview, what I mean is your fundamental beliefs about the creator and the creature, about God and the world and yourself. Uh, and so I can make all the points that I want to make about worldview from Romans 1, which, which says that every created thing reveals God and his attributes to his creatures and puts them under the obligation to acknowledge and worship him. Now, right there, I've got my fundamental beliefs about God, his relationship to the world, and to myself as his covenantal creature. And, and the point that I want to make is everybody has a worldview in the sense that everyone is responding to God's self-revelation. and Everyone is taking a position on the relationship of the creator to the creation. Everyone has, no one's neutral on this question of whether this universe is created and controlled by God, the God of the Bible, the God who's revealed himself in the Bible, that is, and, um, and on their relationship to him. So everyone has a worldview in that sense, and in the sense of we are covenantally responding to the creator and his self-disclosure in the world. Yeah, that's that's a great place to start. Let's let's begin there and try to tackle some of the issues on the epistemology side. Van Til and others after him have articulated the epistemological antithesis between the believer and the unbeliever. And like you said, what's in the background of that is uh, specific biblical passages, um, 1 Corinthians 2, Colossians 2, like you said, Romans 1 is in there. Um, mm-hmm. The Bible's teaching as a whole, I think. Um, so... When believer and unbeliever are consistently epistemologically self-conscious, there will be no point of contact, he says. So a ton of questions and contentions come up when we're discussing this point. There are a lot of um, misunderstandings because it's a both and and not an either or. Mm -hmm. But maybe we can start with uh, does – and this is an easy question, but maybe a good launching pad. Does when we're talking about this issue, does this mean that Christians have to study philosophy in order to know what they believe? In other words, how how important is the terminology and the concepts in philosophy proper to this discussion that we're having right now? Is it a prerequisite, or you know, how how are we supposed to think about that? No, Christians don't have to study philosophy. Um, to have a worldview or to think and live consistently out of that worldview, although philosophy can be a helpful tool for anybody to think more consistently. Um, the, the point is for Christians to think consistently out of their Christian worldview is what matters is they read Scripture and they interpret the world around them in light of the God who's disclosed himself in Scripture. So whether or not you use the technical terms and apparatus of philosophy is, is neither here nor there. Yeah. Okay. Well, and part of the reason I bring that up is that's an objection lobbed sometimes at just that phrase, epistemologically self-conscious. It some people take it to mean that you have to sit down, study epistemology, um, start dissecting whether you're self-conscious at, at particular points or not, and it can get that pedantic on things. But like you said, I don't think we want to express it that way. No, I think to be. Epistemologically self-conscious just means to take all your thoughts captive to Christ and not get taken captive to the human traditions and philosophies of this world. You know, it's it's simply being living consistently out of the notion that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. And so, so I, I think it's as biblically basic as that. Yeah, yeah. One um, one counterexample maybe, and this is an example that often gets brought up in these situations. Uh, is the type of knowledge that seems to have no real religious component. Um, it's detailed knowledge. It's quote-unquote religiously neutral. So maybe we can get specific. There's a classic example I'll give of a scenario. We have 
two scientists in the lab working on, uh, let's say, cancer research. One is a Christian. One is not a Christian. So a way of getting at this question is asking, what specifically are the differences, if any, between their work and and also their results, their achievements? Um, yeah, one objection to quote-unquote worldview that I see popping up depends on that misunderstanding that I said before, that if you're an epistemologically self-conscious Christian, you'll be better at whatever vocation uh, you're involved in, um, and non-religious vocation, I should say, is often the example. So like scientist, lawyer, restaurant manager, whatever, or that you'll be better at a certain skill, like a baseball player, rock climber, whatever. Um, so that's some ta- some sometimes how it's understood, um, particularly with reading Van Til and others. So how can we distinguish between success and performance within a certain field or vocation, and then also giving an ultimate account of what one does and and what one believes. So there's a lot of questions in there. Maybe we can start with the specific, what are the differences when two scientists are in a lab? Right. Well, there's often not uh, any difference uh, in the way the Christian scientist or a non-Christian scientist will operate or a Christian baseball player and a non-Christian baseball player. Um, They're both going to be doing experiments and looking at the results and extrapolating from them, et cetera, et cetera. The difference is um, can, which one of them can give an account or a justification for what they're doing and for the beliefs that they're forming, right? So um, the Christian scientist, that, that's an awkward expression. <laughs> but, um, the, the, the scientist who's a Christian uh, can give an account for their theorizing. So when they perform a number of experiments and obtain the same results over and over, they can justifiably extrapolate that this is the way the world regularly works. Um, There's something like a law or a pattern here, uh, which will hold when I'm not looking in the future and in the past. Um, Because the justification that the Christian has for that is, that the world is providentially run by God. And he says that he is given a fixed order to the planets and the stars and set the world on, found, on its foundations. And um, he's going to keep things running regularly uh, because of yeah, his faithfulness and, uh, and his, the intelligibility of the world that he's made. The non-Christian uh, may assume that nature is uniform, but will have no justification for that. And it, uh, as a student of David Hume, I know this is a, maybe a simplistic way to come at it, but I just I raise the problem of induction. What justification, non-circular justification, does uh, the non-Christian have for believing that unobserved events will resemble uh, the events that they have observed? Why well, think that the results of the experiments that one has has done and perceived will hold when 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 you're not looking? Um, and I don't think. Actually, more on the basis of scripture, even than philosophy, I don't think that that non-Christian has a basis for for holding that. So they both may be doing the same experiments, getting the same results, forming the same beliefs, but only the Christian is justified in holding those beliefs. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. I wonder. This is a little bit tangential, but I wonder how much of an empirical worldview. Uh, comes into play when someone is trying to argue that there really is um, no point in talking about worldview because of their observations of noting really either equal results or better results from an unbelieving standpoint. So we mentioned science, let's say, you know, writings of history, an unbeliever can often do incredibly good scholarship uh, surveying the different epochs of of human history um, often better than than believers can so you know if you're just looking at two historical books side by side one is by a believer one is by an unbeliever um, what we're saying doesn't seem to doesn't seem to match up Um, but I I think what we're getting at is not that aspect but the ultimate justification not just justification within the field right absolutely yeah, all the same things we said about science would hold for the historian as well. I mean, the historian also, I think, and again, this is a sim- maybe a simplistic 
um, non-specialist perspective on that discipline, but I, I think the historian is doing roughly the same thing as the scientist, and that is uh, making extrapolations about unobserved events, uh, predictions about what actually occurred or what motivated people based on what one has observed uh, about human beings and events in the world, you know, in, in the present. So you're like extrapolating back into the past. And the question is, what basis do we have for thinking that the world holds steady when we're not looking uh, in the same ways when we are looking? So, so I think the same thing would hold for a historian. And no, of course, it doesn't imply anything about like uh, most of the time, most of the time that doesn't entail anything about who's, whose uh, scientific or historical conclusions are going to be more reliable. In fact, most of the time I assume that non-Christians are better scholars. The time that, not always of course, but often, um, <laughs> yeah. the, the times when it is going to make a substantial difference, it, at least most obviously when it comes to the four, is when we're dealing with miraculous events. Because the non-Christian scholar is generally committed to a principle of absolute uniformity. That is that events that are unobserved always resemble events that are observed and there is never any justification for believing otherwise. Now, the Christian worldview just materially denies that because it says God does miraculous signs and wonders. Uh, and the Bible tells us when it does them. And the Bible justifies belief in those miraculous works. So, when the scientist or historian deals with events that the Bible says have a miraculous explanation, uh, then they're going to come to false conclusions. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I I, I like that. There's a quote um, from Van Til in Common Grace in the Gospel, and it's, um, the believer and, and the non-believer differ at the outset of every self-conscious investigation um, or science. The factness of the first fact they meet is in question. So we don't take for granted the, the factness of something, that something is a fact and another thing is not a fact. This, is, this gets into the brute fact question. But then even on a philosophical level, we can ask if something is a necessary fact, a contingent fact. So there's a lot more to it than just the assumption of a fact at, at you know, on, on face value. Absolutely. You know, Van Til tends to, well, he does, he stresses the fact that, um, that every, every fact and every inference in your worldview is, is connected. They can't really be separated discreetly in an ultimate sense. And so I've been kind of saying, well, the, the unbelievers is going to have often true, but unjustified beliefs, but then sometimes false unjustified beliefs. And, and I think Van Til wants to stress that, look, those facts are all interrelated. And so the falsehood and the unjustifiedness um, really ramify the entire worldview. And so it's, you're, it's never um, – you can't piecemeal parse it up like quite as neatly maybe as, as I suggested. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah. There's um I'm going to be just reading a couple quotes that I I pulled out um for for this discussion, but one is uh from Van Til again. It's something that I mentioned before, but it's from his uh Christian Apologetics book. And uh I want to introduce um how the Bible fits into this and and Van Til I think puts it really well and maybe clears up some misunderstandings, but he says the Bible is thought of as authoritative on everything of which it speaks. Moreover, it speaks of everything. We do not mean that it speaks of football games, of atoms, etc. directly, but we do mean that it speaks of everything either directly or by implication. It tells us not only of the Christ and his work, but it also tells us who God is and where the universe sorry, where the universe about us has come from. It tells us about theism as well as about Christianity. It gives us a philosophy of history as well as history. Moreover, the information on these subjects is woven into an inextricable whole. It is only if you reject the Bible as the word of God that you can separate the so-called religious and moral instruction of the Bible from what it says, for example, about the physical universe. So I pull that out from time to time because I just think that's just a really succinct way of getting at a lot of things that are in the background of what we're talking about. Absolutely. Great quote. Yeah. yeah. And then the other one, and 
this will end a uh, quote, quote corner. But uh, just to add a little bit of historical context, there's uh, a quote from Richard Muller's first volume of his uh, post-reform reform dogmatics. And I got this quote from somewhere else. So this isn't totally original to me in terms of finding it. But he says, uh, these early reformed statements concerning theological presuppositions focus virtually without exception on the problem of the knowledge of God, given the fact not only of human finitude, but also of human sin. The critique leveled by the Reformation, <coughs> excuse me, the Reformation at medieval theological presuppositions added a soteriological dimension to the epistemological problem. Whereas the medieval doctors had assumed that the fall affected primarily the will and its affections and not the reason, the reformers assumed also the fallenness of the rational faculty. A generalized or pagan natural theology, according to the reformers, was not merely limited to non-saving knowledge of God, it was also bound in idolatry. This view of the problem of knowledge is the single most important contribution of the early Reformed writers to the theological prolegomena of Orthodox Protestantism. So that carries a ton of weight with me, especially from Muller as a historian. You know, he's he's prioritizing what were the what were the observations that the reformers made that basically were game changers? And this, this is a big one. So there's a lot of precedent to what we're saying. Um, the relationship of philosophy to theology just is not new. Reformers in the next generation wrestled with it, with um, Aristotle and his influence. Afterwards, you have Cartesian thought and the Enlightenment. After that, you have Kant and so on and so on. So um, we're dealing with something that Christians have needed to think about for quite a while. Yeah, and can I just add something to that Mueller quote? Um, I think the Mueller quote is dealing primarily with our knowledge of uh, of God. Um, it is dealing with our knowledge of God. What doesn't follow from what Mueller is describing is this notion that your beliefs about God then ramify your beliefs about everything in the world. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a distinctive contribution of Kuiper and Van Til. Um, I don't think that, uh, at least I don't see before them, even reformed folks who were, who were tapping into that. They may have gotten it right that, hey, you know, knowledge of God and of, uh, and of Christ um, is, you know, there's a necessity to start with revelation, with, with scripture, and, and the witness of the Spirit. But I don't think that they were making a further step in saying knowledge of anything then depends upon the knowledge of God. Um, that is unique to to Kuiper and Van Til, in, in my opinion. Hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's helpful. And maybe that's a good segue to talk about um, – well, epistemology, epistemology will always be in the background. But maybe we can focus a, l- focus a little bit more on practice. So if Scripture is our principium for – both church life and life outside the church. How do we distinguish the proper role of the church and our role in secular society? So, and this goes both ways. Does the Christian impose Christian law onto society and does society need to be addressed from within the church? So, um, what, what's your take on that? I'm, I'm sure that's going to come up at the conference, but as, as you've wrestled with these things, um, the, the church and society question, how, how do you see that? What are some helpful principles? Yeah, well, that's broad. I mean, it encompasses both the, the different spheres of, of society, like, you know, um, different, the business sphere or the educational sphere or the, uh, in the sphere of the family or, or what have you. Um, and, and also the political sphere. And I think the political is what often gets a lot of attention, but, but I would just, my own basic perspective on this is I, I agree with Kuiper and his sphere sovereignty. And that is that Jesus is Lord over the cosmos. And that includes all spheres of society and the state and intellectual endeavors and every human pursuit and activity that you could conceive of. So his word is going to be the law and the norm for every sphere of society. Um, However, that doesn't mean that the church as a particular sphere um, is going to be dominant or sovereign over the state or any other sphere. So there's a difference between, you know, the church taking over the culture or the church taking over the state and the culture and the church and the state being ruled 
by the Lordship and the Word of Christ. And that last, that all the spheres each be accountable to and come under the, the Lordship and sway of Christ, that I think is um, uh, the goal of what Christians should be striving for. That's what it means for God to, God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah, that's helpful. It, related to this, there seems to be a couple of approaches that get a decent amount of press um, that we can acknowledge and um, maybe add a little bit of, of clarity or further thoughts on. There's the what's called radical two-kingdom theology or approach, and then there's transformationalism, and those are butting heads quite a bit, um, people in those camps. Uh, so maybe first, what can we appreciate regarding um, Christians transforming culture? That phrase, that idea, what's what's helpful about that? What can we um, yeah, appreciate about um, people who are, who are trying to do that? Yeah, I, like I just said, I think it's right for Christians to seek to bring all of culture and society and politics and everything under the Lordship of Christ and therefore have them be transformed. And Christians are to do that in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think that, um, you know, the miracles of Jesus are the beginning of the renewal of all things. And so the, the, the kingdom is already present in that sense. And uh, yeah, so that's right. Now, I think cultural transformationism is wrong if you make cultural transformation the mission of the church mm. as an institution. The mission of the church as an institution is very narrow, and that is it's to make disciples, baptize them, and teach the whole counsel of God. Um, individual Christians are, wherever they are, in all different spheres, are to be seeking to transform the culture by bringing it under the Lordship of Christ the church as an institution is not. And so I think we go astray when we, um, when we broaden the mission of the church like that. Um, an, another danger for cultural transformationalism is undue optimism. You know, I mean, I, I'm an amillennialist and postmillennialism is wrong. And so if you think that like we are going to, in our efforts to transform the culture, we are going to ultimately succeed before the Lord returns. That's foolish. Um, so, you know, all, all of our gains in this before the Lord returns will be partial, imperfect, um, temporary. And, and so we're, all of our hope is fixed on, on the return of Christ. Um, but cultural transformationalism, for my money, is just the fact that Christians, as a new humanity, are taking up again the cultural mandate. It does belong to them. It is still incumbent upon them because they are the heirs of the world. And so... Um, they are taking dominion over it as its true heirs in Christ and as the second Adam. Yeah, well, that, that's helpful too. And this, the other side of the coin then, in, in the same way, what can we appreciate and really get behind regarding expressions of two-kingdom theology out there? What can we say, yes, we want to affirm that, yes, we want to protect the church, etc.? And then maybe where can we... Um, yeah, like I said, I don't know if clarify is the right word, but maybe offer a, a different take on, on a few of their applications that they might um, trend towards. Yeah, I I think, insofar as I understand Two Kingdom theology, I am very sympathetic with some of their driving concerns. Here's what I'm sympathetic with. First of all, I'm sympathetic with um, the concern that the church's mission will be blurred and will bleed into cultural transformationism. Cultural transformation is the mission of the individual Christian, wherever they are, in whatever area of culture they are. It's not the mission of the church. The church is not a community service organization. It's not a political action committee. It's not a uh, not there to take up social causes. It's there to make disciples by preaching the whole counsel of God. And so I'm, I, I want to protect that. I also think that there's a real danger of, that as you emphasize, the Lordship of Christ over all of culture, that you lose the centrality of the church and its mission. All of life belongs to Christ and his kingdom, but the church and its mission has got to have a special place of preeminence and special honor and centrality in our lives and in the way we think about the world. Um, it's the spearhead and center of the kingdom of God insofar as it's already here. Um, and then finally, I think I'm also sympathetic to a concern with 
with worldliness. Um, I think we have to clarify, however, what we mean by worldliness and, and the right biblical notion of otherworldliness. I, I think that the kingdom of heaven, to inherit the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus says in the Beatitudes, is to inherit this earth. When the kingdom comes in its finality, it's going to be this earth, purged of sin and purged of the curse and the manifest presence of God in Christ here. And um, so thus far, I actually disagree with the two kingdom theology, which tends to identify the kingdom of God only with the visible church here on earth or with the intermediate realm, heaven um, right now, or with the age to come. And um, some two kingdom people I read seem to think that this earth will be annihilated and replaced by uh, the current intermediate state, like heaven dropping down and replacing this cosmos. And that's just biblically untenable. Um, so I'll, I say all that to say that I think that two kingdom theology can have a, a uh, false notion of worldliness versus otherworldliness where um, uh, other, you know, to be, to be not worldly is to be taken up with the visible church, the intermediate state, and this replacement world that's going to drop down when, when Christ returns. Um, however, living for the kingdom, um, in, in the right sense of it, living for the renewed heavens and the renewed earth means living to obtain this world, this very world that we're living in, as an inheritance, but not living to an, obtain it as an inheritance right now but in the age to come when it's cleansed of sin and of the curse like the lord says we need to be willing to sacrifice real earthly goods like family and riches etc now so that we can regain them a hundred times over in the new heavens and the new earth see the two kingdoms theology tends to think of worldliness in terms of like the spatial metaphor are we focused on this earth or are we focused on the intermediate state where, where the Lord is, the presence of where Christ is right now, that heaven in that sense. I think that true otherworldliness, the biblical kind of otherworldliness is focused on, it's, it's a temporal contrast. Is my hope set on this earth now or this earth when the Lord returns and purges it of all sin and evil and gives me my great reward as a co-heir with Christ? In the age to come. I, does that make sense? I know I kind of rambled there, but I, I think that's important because, you know, I, um, if we're trying to take dominion over all this earth for Christ, we can easily get taken up in it and, and forget that, um, you know, we're, yes, I'm an heir of all things. I'm an heir of this world in Christ, but my hope is set upon and I will sacrifice anything here now in order that I may regain it when the Lord returns. Is that coherent? Yeah, I think so. I might want to, and push back on this if you feel like you need to, I mean, um, 2 Peter 3, 11 yeah, yeah. and following is kind of the classic other other side to this, which is, I'll just read it, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Yeah. So there's definitely a sense that, I mean, this is the whole continuity, discontinuity, discussion of eschatology, what will continue, what will not continue. I think the Second Peter 3 uh, passage indicates that there will be some point of discontinuity. Some things will burn, some things will go away. Um, I think when we get specific about it, uh, we're speculating. But um, So that's just to say, you know, I think you're right. There, there is a temporal aspect, but I also think that there's a, um, a this world um, or, or a part of this world, and I don't know specifically what it's going to be, but um, it's it's going to be done away with, and, and I don't know how specific we can get on that. Well, I don't want to get over specific either, but but I, for myself, I'm fairly confident that what what gets purged, what gets burned, is not God's good creation, but only sin and the effects of sin. Now, what that means in specific cases, I think, is difficult to parse out, but. I mean, I, Colossians 1.20, Christ is reconciling all things in heaven and on earth, 
to himself. And I, I think I would connect that with Romans 8, that this earth is groaning in pains of childbirth because it wants to be set free and liberated and inherited by the, uh, the sons of God. Now, on, on the two kingdom view, this earth never gets liberated. It gets annihilated and replaced by another one. Um, and I, I just don't find that defensible. I mean, the Second Peter 3 passage, um, you know, I read that against the parallel with the flood, which is also there in Second Peter 3. And when it's talking about the flood, the old world was cataluoed. It was <clears throat> destroyed. But that obviously doesn't mean it was annihilated into non-existence. It means it was purged of sinners. And um, so I think that when this world is going to be consumed by fire, the word there is luo. And I don't think that it specifically entails annihilation, mm-hmm. just purgation of, of sinners and of, of sin and the effects of sin. So that's how I come down on that. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, it's again, it's a both end because it's, it's a new heavens and a new earth. And it's also a new heavens and a new earth. And so, you know, that, that just clearly expresses, I think, the continuity and discontinuity. It's not a new something other, you know, another term. Um, so, yeah, I agree. Maybe this is interesting. I don't know. We probably just want to mention it and move on. But recently there was this product that I was alerted to. And Nathan, I don't know if you saw this, but it's called the Edify, E-D-I-F-I. And it is um, it's kind of a, a play on a term, but it's supposed to be a quote-unquote Christian tablet like the iPad. It's meant to replace, I assume, secular tablets like the iPad. Um, it has more Christian content and controls, if you want to call it that. But it it struck me as I was looking at this that this is kind of the prime example that 2K is talking about. That of you know, there's nothing sinful or wrong on face value with creating a quote unquote Christian tablet, but. It does seem like there's. It's not really getting at what the problem is when you talk about um, tablets like the iPad. The, the problem is not the iPad. The problem is the user. Um, anything can be abused uh, or used well, used rightly, like a tool, like it was meant to be. Um, so, I, I mean, I don't know how much we can say on that, but it did strike me as an example of that's not really transforming something into Christian a Christian tablet. It's really just, um, and it didn't look that good anyway. So, like, the quality was was what you'd expect. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. That may not even be worth mentioning, but it did strike me as an example um, of of maybe what we're talking about in terms of transforming attempts. I agree. That's silly. I'm not sure who's who's theology to blame for that. Um, I kind of blame just right. like theological illiteracy on that, but. Um, uh, yeah, this is unrelated, but something that came to mind I thought I should mention, um, this is unrelated. I just, I'll leave that one and say, we can all agree that's ridiculous. And maybe we <laughs> yeah. should just blame each other for it. Yeah. But, um, uh, David Van Drunen, I read in his book on living God's two kingdoms, he thinks that the only, the only, I think, things from this world that will survive in the new heavens and the new earth are the glorified physical bodies of believers. Um, and so... I just want to say, for me, I, that's virtually incomprehensible. I mean, are the saints going to inherit the earth or not? Apparently not. The earth is going to get annihilated, and it's going to get replaced by another earth or something like that. So I, 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 to me, that's just an extreme which disproves the general principle, as if there's something about this world insofar as it's, just, it's a created uh, an entity that's wrong. What's wrong with it is that it's sinful and broken. So once the sinfulness and the brokenness gets fixed, um, there's there's no longer anything about it that uh, that doesn't survive. And that seems to be what's meant when it says that the kings of this earth will bring their glory and honor into the new Jerusalem, and that Christ is going to inherit all the you know the wealth of the kingdoms of this earth. Uh, yeah, I'll throw that out there. Yeah, I'm definitely on that. I know you've you kind of gone back and forth on that some yourself. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, yeah, I try to stick with just the general principles. But, you know, you you brought up something where eschatology definitely has immediate application into your life and the way that you see everything. So if you see 
everything physical around you um, besides people as being completely annihilated, that's going to have implications for, um, I guess, just how you operate, how you understand just the physical universe. And and I don't think any of the, the moral law is affected by that in terms of behavior. But, you know, it's part of the background beliefs that I think do inform uh, it's all going to burn. Yeah, yeah, it's like, all going to burn. And right. you know, taking examples like cultural artifacts, you know, bringing up things like the Mona Lisa, um if that's going to burn, I, I tend to think probably it will, um but I don't know that at all. <laughs> you know, that's complete speculation I think in in either sense. Um and I also think that there needs to be a redemptive historical um typological argument here um so you know we say what is typology and um how does it relate to what is going to be kept and what is going to be um not kept you know uh so i don't know those again those are just general principles i just don't know how we how specific we can get cultural artifacts are really difficult i i agree like um but Jared, I'll just throw this out at you. Our boy Van Til, he is just as as strong as you can be, like frighteningly strong on this on this topic in terms of continuity. Uh, if you read his that the first couple of chapters of essay on Christ, Christian education, so he he very he makes very strong statements about you know cultural transformationalism, etc. And he says all the products of non-Christian culture will be taken from them and brought into the great display chambers of the kingdom of Christ. Um, it is only those who are believers in Christ that will inherit the earth and all the fullness thereof. So I think Van Til's got the Mona Lisa and the new heavens and new earth. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to do a lot more work on it. But, you know, this – and we can talk more about it. That's that's <laughs> fine. But um, one question that I did have um, that, that maybe we would like to address is when we talk about how – the Bible is authoritative on these matters, um, how we should look to Scripture to determine um, boundaries and, and principles for what we're talking about here. We're, I think we want to say we're not talking about one-to-one proof texting of every particular action that we do or um, every proposition that we um, are are referring to. So, you know, a robust biblical theological rigorously exegetical and also historically informed hermeneutics seems like, you know, if you have all those things um, in balance, wouldn't it eliminate some of the difficulties here when speaking of what the Bible can and can't do? And, um, you know, hopefully we're trying to do that here on this show. It's, you know, what does Van Til say, but what does scripture say? And um, what is our, our experience say? And what can we extrapolate from that? So, I know that this question is so convoluted uh, by now, but how do we use scripture and these other um, disciplines like biblical theology, like um, historical theology, exegesis to uh, try and come at this answer? Um, This is, this is a method question, I guess. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that we're uh, like that quote that you read from Van Til, to have a Christian worldview and to approach everything from a Christian worldview isn't to, that you have like, uh, one-to-one scriptures about everything that you on which you hold beliefs. Period. What you have in scripture are the broad, overarching principles. Yeah. Whereby you interpret and come to conclusions and draw inferences about every fact. But but, but I'll maintain being to a strong point, and that is that every fact about which we hold beliefs, um, everything that we believe, it's only justified if it is justified at all in terms of principles which are derived from scripture. Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah, well, and I don't. What do you, don't what's that? What do you think? Were you going to add to that? Yeah, no, that's really good. You know, I just, um, well, I don't know if I should go down this road, but I, I often get a bit annoyed uh, at the charge of biblicism when um, exegesis is called for and not simply quoting historical figures. Um, If we – there's a balance to both of them. I think, you know, when we're discussing these matters, we absolutely want to look at what historical conversations have gone on before us. Otherwise, we're just ignorant and we're saying things – I I recognize this right now as I'm talking. We're saying things that have already been said. Um, This road has been gone – you know, people have gone down this road before and and said things better than how I'm saying it. So absolutely, I want to affirm that. On the other hand – you know, if we put uh, historical thought 
as some kind of barrier where we can never get to what Scripture says because um, we just assume that these historical figures have already thought about it, and um, you know, it, it almost becomes um, a, a practical principium uh, in our method. Um, so all that is to say that you know, the charge of biblicism that it just it doesn't work on its own. It needs to be demonstrated. It needs to be thought out more. It needs to be argued for. Um, just charging uh, doesn't cut it. So. You know, I want to say what we want to do is rigorous exegesis and also um, have that be historically uh, informed. You know, Moses Silva has that great article called The Case for Calvinistic um, Hermeneutics, where he emphasizes a method. Um, it really is a hermeneutical spiral. So you're constantly going back to the text, and then you're going back to systematic theology and historical theology, then you're going back again. Um, so it's just not compartmentalized as much as some people want to make it out to be. That, that's all. I agree with that. Yeah. And for myself, like, I, just one thing, I mean, I, I always, I'm a historically oriented guy, personally, and I always want to know what the what great theologians of the past have said, but I want to know not just what they believe, but why they believed it. And so yeah. that, that allows me then to analyze whether there are biblical grounds, whether those are specific or more general for holding the beliefs they did. Yeah, that's that's actually a really good point because um, I think it, you know in method often it comes up where you, you throw a quote out there by let's even say Calvin and it disagrees with what you're saying and then that that ends it. It's well Calvin disagrees, so end of discussion. And I don't think it's that helpful. Probably. I think that carries some weight, but um, it's not like you said the reasons for why Calvin believed something or why another figure um, believed something. I think is just as important as uh, the person's resume. Historically, yeah, absolutely. And to come back to the two kingdoms thing, I mean, I think we can all agree that, yeah, the Reformed from Calvin onwards up till very recently identified the kingdom of God with the church, but that's exegetically untenable. Um, and so I don't care who said it. It's, it just doesn't make any sense to read Jesus as saying repent and believe because the church is about to be established. That just doesn't make a lick of sense. Kingdom of God is this eschatological complex of events, and it can't be strictly identify with the visible church. So that's just one point where, you know, even if two kingdoms theology is right substantially, it needs to adopt new terminology because the terminology is unjustifiable biblically. Hmm. Yeah, well, that's a good point. And just to piggyback on that, I think um, a lot of times when some are talking about the Reformed tradition believes X, when clearly, you know, you just even look at the Westminster Divines and their debates about certain issues, um, sometimes issues that get trotted out as just the definitive Reformed belief on whatever. You just think, you know, th- that was debated too, you know. It just, yeah, yeah. it's never I, just one certain, yeah. um, well, not never, oftentimes it is, but on, on some of these things that we're talking about that um, have a little bit more wiggle room within the yeah. tradition and have been debated there, I just want to see a little bit more recognition of the debates um, then this was just yeah this was assumed to be the case yep absolutely so. uh, I mean we're not well served I think by hagiographical approaches to history which are mainly like you know mining history for devotional examples and things like that I yeah. mean the, we're, we're indebted to those but also it, it just it leads people to think that like all reformed people have always believed one thing and that one thing is obviously infallible and that's all bogus and unhelpful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know there's a ton here to discuss. Um, worldview is just, it's so broad and, and we've tried to tackle maybe a few points, um, broader principles, um, to give some direction and, and some discussion. We barely scratch, scratch the surface, but yeah, I hope there's a few points of direction. Any last remarks or concluding comments, Nathan, on your end that um, either on the epistemological, the practical, um, or just, you know, worldview in general? Um, yes. Well, I, let me just, well, let me say this about, uh, since we've been talking about the two kingdoms theology, and that is, there's one objection which I would, I would like, um, and maybe it's already been said, stated by two kingdoms proponents and I haven't heard it. But for myself, one reason why I can't ever get on board with the the natural law as a basis for political discourse or debate in the public square in general is not that there my point is not that there's not a natural law which is written on everyone's heart. There obviously is, but that because of sin we distort and suppress the truth. 
And so conscience is no longer directly available between all of us as, uh, as something which we can just read off clearly. We, we, we suppress the truth and distort our conscience, and that's why we need redemptive revelation to tell us the will of God. And that means that the scripture is going to have to be the final court of appeal for Christians, not only personally, but also as they formulate their political beliefs. And we should not be embarrassed about, but instead recognize sometimes it's going to be necessary for us to appeal the word of God as our final court of appeal, even in the public square. Mm-hmm. And not only is that necessary, but uh, we shouldn't be embarrassed about that. And so I'd like to see if, I don't know, I'm not sure if Two Kingdoms proponents think that conscience hasn't been distorted or if uh, all the deliverances of conscience can be proven through some philosophical framework, which doesn't start with Christian theistic presuppositions. I mean, that's what Thomas does. You know, Thomas has this view of the good, which is totally is abstract. And you can understand, you know, natural law without reference in the first place to God. Uh, if that's what you want to argue, um, is that I want, is, if that's the case they're making, I'd like to know that. I think that can't hold up from a theological or philosophical point of view. So I, I want to know. I want to know if there are effects of sin on the conscience. How is that going to be adequate to be a basis for public discourse? That's a good question. Yeah, maybe that that would be a good one for uh, another episode if we get. Um... Sorry, I just want to get my last licks on there. <laughs> yeah, no, understandable. Um, yeah, I I like to follow up on that too. So maybe we can do that next time. But um, Nathan, definitely want to thank you uh, for your thoughts, giving us some helpful insight on these things, some good direction. I'll try to put a link in the show notes to the Clash Conference for reference, so people can check out what's going on there. What are some of the sessions? And, uh, and you can also follow, follow Nathan on Twitter. It's at N.I. Sasser, isn't it? It is. Uh, I'm going to say a lot of silly things probably, and so don't, don't get your hopes up too high. <laughs> okay. Well, if, if people want to check that out, it's at N.I. Sasser. Um, also want to thank uh, you, the listener, for joining us, and we'll see you next time on Philosophy for Theologians.